Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast, produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. It was just two years ago, in March 2020, when the world shut down. An improbable situation that not one of us could ever have imagined. New York, London, Paris, Rome, Tokyo. Silence and fear we could feel but could not touch. Today, I'm in conversation with Swedish photographer Charlie Bennett, who lives in New York, and Elena Gustafsson, a Swedish journalist also based in New York, to talk about their book, On Pause, Three Months That Changed New York. Charlie specializes in still life and lifestyle photography and has worked with editorial and advertising clients such as the New York Times, Nike, and Wallpaper. His photographs have been exhibited in the United States and Europe. Elena Gustafsson reports mainly for Swedish media on politics, social issues, and arts and culture. She has covered two presidential elections, profiled a few U.S.-based authors, including Salman Rushdie, Siri Hashtvelt, and Colson Whitehead. She's written several pieces on how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted America. Charlie, perhaps welcome, by the way, and... As we begin this conversation, perhaps you can describe your work and the other books that you've published before we talk about On Pause. Thank you. I am typically not a street photographer. My days typically spent in my studio, which is a food photography studio. I do a lot of food photography and product photography and video. I've published three cookbooks so far. Having said that, I actually did also a coffee table book a few years back about Stockholm's in the U.S., which is obviously the capital of Sweden. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's for another time. <laughs> well, the food books sound very interesting, actually. Yes. It's very different than what I did with On Pause. Yes, I do a lot of food and beverage photography normally. When the pandemic hit, All my work just ended overnight. I had plenty of time to start exploring the city and photographing something very different. Elena, perhaps you can talk about your your perspective covering the United States through a Swedish lens. And tell us about Anders Tegnell, whom you describe as the Dr. Fauci of Sweden. I, I know you said that you interviewed him. And as Americans, as you know, when, when we hear the word Dr. Fauci, much comes to mind. So I work as a reporter here in New York. I've been here for about eight years now. One of those people who are supposed to stay for a few months, but then a month came years. And <laughs> I do work mostly on American topics. Uh-huh. During the pandemic, it became so obvious to Sweden and United States had very different strategies and philosophies and ways to talk about certain 
subjects and ways to, to handle the pandemics. I talked to my editors at the newspaper that I work for in Sweden. I said it would be interesting to write a story or a piece on this, how, how it differs, how we in the U.S. look at face masks. I also interviewed a few Swedish people in Germany just to show Swedish readers that there's a very different view on, on face masks in, in other countries. I did get an interview with Anders Tegnell. I thought it would be five minutes, but he actually, he was nice enough to continue to talk for maybe 25 minutes. So I feel like I got some out of it. It was probably the longest interview on this topic that any Swedish journalist ever did, <laughs> which is good. But it's been very interesting to see Sweden and the United States, how things have been handled and who's been on what side in the debate. I'd love to start our conversation around the book by asking each of you to read a little bit, a graph or two from, from the introduction. Charlie, do you want to begin? Oh, I would love to. On the morning of March 23rd, 2020, I took Winnie to the park as usual. Central Park, that is the best park in the world. Winnie's rescue puppy that my wife and I had gotten a few months earlier She's made some playmates close to the Bethesda fountain. On this day, though, things were different. I didn't have to watch out for cars or tell Winnie to wait for the green light. My bustling, busy hometown was now quiet and empty. As we walked along 58th Street toward Fifth Avenue, I had to stop a few times to snap photos of the ghostly avenues. There was only one word for the feeling I had. Bizarre. And Helena, would you read from what you wrote? So this is also part of the intro. I think of On Pause as quite an optimistic book, kind of time capsule. It is filled with reminders of sadness, death, fear, and injustice, but also creativity, resilience, humanity, change, willpower, solidarity, and ingenuity. Mistakes were made during the pandemic, but I was also amazed by the resourcefulness and acceptance of New Yorkers. The attitude seemed to be, okay, this seems like the right thing to do. Let's make the best of it. Even if it was a bit of an inconvenience to wear a face mask or go for drinks with someone through a screen. How did you decide, Helena, you were doing the writing, Charlie was doing the the photography. How did you decide to structure the book? Originally, there wasn't really a plan to make a book out of this. Being a photographer in New York City and living through this very surreal experience, I I felt compelled to start documenting the city in this state that we had never seen before. Eventually, I realized that all this material that I have photographed probably should be compiled into to some kind of document that could could be a feature over this this remarkable time and and honor people that had such a hardship throughout the pandemic. When the idea of, of the book came to me, Helena and I connected and we very quickly came to the same understanding on how we would see this book come out. To me, it was very important to incorporate these people that were interviewed because we're seeing all these empty streets and bridges and train stations, and they're empty because people are doing something else. 
when Helena and I started talking, we we quickly agreed that we definitely should make a book that incorporates the part with New Yorkers. When I saw Charlie's photos, I thought they were lovely and beautiful and interesting on, on their own to me. Also, the question was like, where are the people? There's a lack of something or some there's something missing in them, of course. So, and I think we were right away and had the same ideas of that we wanted to to talk to as many different different people, but people different professions and living in different parts of the city and with different experiences from this time. And of course, and I tried to emphasize that, of course, these are only there's only so much you can put in a book. It doesn't cover everybody or every experience. How did you find the people? They're really interesting. We've been sourcing our own networks as far as we can. And then we've we've used friends of friends, then different networks. Some people have been really busy and some much more difficult. And like Helena mentioned, first and foremost, we wanted to talk to, to people that we felt represented the city. But also keeping in mind that, you know, this is a very diverse city. So we wanted to reflect that in the choice of people that we talked to. And, and that was a bit of a challenge sometimes to find the exact right profile. But I mean, we wish that we could have talked to 100 people to, mm-hmm. to you know, really show off the spread of, of the diversity in this city. But I feel like we, we managed to talk to people that put a very valuable input to the book and shared wonderful stories. And I think with diversity, I think uh, we're thinking not only for diversity's sake, but but actually the pandemic did affect different groups very differently uh, depending on race, ethnicity, and uh, but also income level and mm-hmm. where in the city do you live and what's, what resources do you have? How many doctors do you have per capita? Was there a thread? One of the things that it did seem, regardless of what zip code you were living in, you were taken to the hospital alone. If you got COVID in those early months, you were picked up in an ambulance and you were delivered somewhere and you could not have people visiting you. So did you did you find a thread through these interviews of, say, loneliness or fear or any, anything that everyone seemed to have in common? I think we all probably felt afraid at some point, right? Where we didn't know really where this was going. It was a few weeks and I also felt alone. I was alone in my apartment. It's actually my birthday today. And uh, so exactly two years ago, I was <laughs> celebrating my birthday just alone. And I, I happened to have a little a bottle of Prosecco for 10 bucks at home, which was made me happy. <laughs> but uh, I mean, those times I felt lonely. But but also, I think for me, it was more became a time to eventually where I had time to reflect on things and I had time to work out a bit at home <laughs> and focus on, on work and on other things in my life. So I think the people we interview, there are several of them have very 
horrifying experiences, losing people, being afraid, uh, doctors who were at work feeling totally powerless or didn't know where, how to uh, protect patients or the staff that they were. I, I don't think maybe there's a thread like that, that there's fear and despair. More resilience, I think, is the thread, if anything. Yeah. That's the word that came back so so often. People really were very decisive to get through this uh, and not just survive, but to actually live life. I've been getting the question a few times regarding how much I documented of the city uh, and if I was covering the boroughs as well. And I've been telling people that I remember, especially in the first first month, first six weeks that I went out to to photograph, I did didn't know anything about the virus. All I knew that it was deadly and it was very easy to contract. And I remember that every time I went out with my camera, I I was I was afraid of possibly catching COVID. Uh, I remember I was spraying down my city bike to make sure that I, I wouldn't get COVID from, from biking around the city. And knowing what I know today, I wish that I had been traveling to the boroughs more and documenting more. But I was just, I was afraid back then because I didn't know if how bad this was. I mean, fear was very important. I think a lot about solitary and and silence, something that I'd been reading about before the pandemic, solitary in terms of being solitary confinement in prison. Alfred Woodfox was one of the people who spent the most time in solitary confinement in in an American prison and wrote a book called Solitary. And silence as in, in nature versus being quarantined and there's a Norwegian explorer named Erling Keg who spent 50 days walking solo across the Antarctica with his, and his radio was broken. So he published a book entitled Silence in the Age of Noise. And it was published by Penguin in 2017. I bought it in London. I was in London January of 2020, right before the pandemic. I was reading this book and then he published an essay in the Financial Times about silence during COVID. And he ended the essay by saying, quarantined, I have been thinking a lot about this life on the ice because in its simplicity, it was uncommonly rich, not unlike the last two weeks. There was a certain, I think as you say, we had an opportunity to to be quiet and to understand living alone and thinking about what that meant. I think being in New York is wonderful. There's so much to do here. There's so much to do culture-wise and restaurants and you can go out, you can meet people, people are social, but it's also, it's stressful, I think, for for most people in some way. Mm. That idea of who you're going to be in New York City and when you don't have those options anymore, when you strip down things in your life. Maybe it's not the same as being in Antarctica without the radio. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking more and more that somehow maybe governments or other institutions should help people more to to reach that state once in a while. Because with all this tech that we have around us, it's very hard to cut that off, I think, for mm-hmm. even for us who are 
adults. <laughs> I mean, with, for younger kids, I don't know how, how they do it, but maybe it's easier for them. For me and my wife, one of the positives about the pandemic, and I'm, I'm a little skeptical of saying this out loud, but that was actually the silence. We live in a very busy part of Manhattan, 58 and 3rd, right next to the uh, bridge. And there's traffic 24-7 here. And for for a couple of months, it was just quiet and it was wonderful. And we really appreciated it so much. All we could hear was birds and unfortunately all those sirens. It was a tragic time in, in many ways, but it was also the city was beautiful in in its serenity and in its silence. So I really enjoyed the city, even though it was it was different and for a very bizarre reason. Laura Nero's line comes to me from her her music called New York Tenderberry, which looks like a city but feels like religion to me. The British writer Robert McFarlane is an author that I admire, and he also he often collects vocabulary that's been deleted from the dictionary for one reason or another. It occurred to me as I was reading your book and thinking about two years ago that we have words in our vocabulary that have now become familiar. Antigen tests, molecular tests, social distancing, flattening the curve, essential workers. And, and, and then we understand the meaning behind words like emergency worker, face shields, isolation, quarantine, pandemic. I don't think any of us had really thought about what those words mean. Did you find that when you were looking at the vocabulary? We started a list with words. We actually had that idea from early on that we would add vocabulary. This mask slip, which is the, when the mask falls we mentioned that in the book as well, compared to manslip and homosexual, which was also a word that came out where people yeah. started to find the governor very attractive. <laughs> and unfortunately, too many people, perhaps. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, on, on the same path, maybe COVIDiot was also like, um, so COVID and idiots, if you will. And Blur's Day was when all the days, nobody knew what day it was. So it was just every day was Blur's Day because you just uh, had yeah. <laughs> quarantine, I think. It was kind of good as well. Mm. And then more these things like learning pod when people started having homeschool or together with other kids. And I guess more physical like ailments, COVID arm. We have a few. Elbow bump. Yeah. A funny side note, I'm crediting our little puppy, Winnie, a lot for, for this book happening. If if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't have gone out and start photographing. But it was very interesting talking to other dog owners in, in Central Park in the mornings. We were pretty new as dog owners back then. However, we got our puppy prior to the pandemic. But the the first question you got in the park during that time was, is it a COVID dog or not? Mm. If it is, then you weren't necessarily a real serious dog owner. You were just jumping on the trend of of, of adopting a dog. <laughs> so we were very, we were very clear on pointing out that no, she's not a COVID dog. 
But yeah, there was there was quite a few of those those new words that come up. Now, when when you look back at the at the book two years later, it's exquisitely beautiful and a peaceful book. And in some ways, I look back at that time as a special moment when, you know, despite the fact that COVID was ravaging the globe and there was so much inequality at all levels about treatments and opportunities for care and opportunities to have a vaccination when, when we, a vaccine had been developed, but at least the world seemed a little more peaceful. And now the world has opened up and look what's happened. Do you look at the book now? I think because we've lost our sense, you know, during that period, we kind of lost our sense of time. As you said, Helena, you know, we didn't know whether it was a weekend or not. It's very hard to keep track of the days because every day was the same. What comes to mind? At least for me, I've been, I was in the, in the lockdown and then the city started opening up. But, and then we started working on the book and we've been working on this project now. It came out late, just before the holidays. We've been in this project now for, or I've been in this project for over two years and Exactly two years, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. The time to move on, Charlie. Is that what you're saying? Two years today. <laughs> no, but I don't think that I've come to a point where I have been able to distance myself from this yet. I'm looking at the photos and I recall a very different time. And I read, read the stories, but I'm still in this very much, which is also, I think, one of the reasons why I I feel that the, these last couple of years has been very exhausting mentally, uh, because I am still still living with the pandemic very much. As I mentioned earlier, the irony of me getting COVID around the two-year anniversary and living in this is just, it's so typical. I'm hoping in a few years that I'll be able to look back in this and have a, a more clear view of how this time actually was and how it impacted me because right now I feel like I'm, I'm still in it. Now I could just say on the more general level, maybe how now when we look at, at the world being more, more normal, but also Scary times, of course, especially for, for the people who are involved in different conflicts. But for me, COVID, the COVID time or the pandemic time here in New York showed that people can change a lot and we can we can step away from some pleasures or some things that we feel like we really need to just survive or like makes life worth living. I don't think anyone wants us to go back and live pandemic lives just to to save the climate or not, Mm. or to have a more equal world in general. But the message is often from politicians and and groups in society that we can't change. But I think it just showed that we we can change, but then we should hopefully change for, for other reasons than a pandemic. Do you have any plans to exhibit the photographs in the United States or internationally? We do. 
and we actually had a plan to to open an exhibit around the uh, the two year anniversary this March, but we weren't able to find um, an exhibit space that would accommodate our limited budget and and also we were both pretty busy with book and 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 other things in our lives so we weren't able to do it right now but i am very very confident that there's going to be an exhibit thank you very much this has been a, a interesting conversation and very timely to think that it was it's hard for me to think about two years it it seems that it was just yesterday in some ways. And then in some ways, it seems that it was really quite a while ago that we've made the ship. It's very hard to, at this moment, I think, really think about time. And as you said, and then it was so much going on and what we're seeing right now in the world. So we have a whole nother situation to, to sort of deal with. Anyway, well, thank you to both of you. and. We will include in the episode notes the website so that people can look at the photographs. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Okay. Great. Thank you. Have a lovely day. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. <laughs>